This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today, we'll introduce you to a musician who made what KEXP morning DJ John Richards calls one of the most important records of the year. A record the musician, Rudy Willingham, didn't think anyone would hear. No one was listening to my music, (laughs) and I literally was just making music for my wife. And as part of this week's Day Job segment, we'll hear about a musician who works at the punk barbershop chain of Seattle. Rudy is like purchase music of their employees' bands and put them on our music library. But first, we have a spooky and mysterious music story for you. It's about Jim Sullivan. And I found a magic man I bought a pound of magic and Jim Sullivan was a fairly unknown singer and songwriter in the 60s and 70s. But if you listened to his music, you would have thought he would have been a hit. I found a magic man. But what we're talking about today is a story of his mysterious disappearance and revival of his music after he was never to be seen again. He was a struggling singer-songwriter like so many uh, artists then and still now. That's Matt Sullivan. He's founder of Light in the Attic Records. He first listened to Jim Sullivan, No Relation, about 10 years ago. Shortly after, he reissued an album by Jim Sullivan on his record label. Then on Friday, Light in the Attic Records released and re-released two more Jim Sullivan albums. His music kind of was in the style of, you could say, kind of Americana, that kind of a vibe. But um, he had these brushes with fame. Before Jim Sullivan's disappearance, he was trying to make it as a musician in L.A. His wife worked at Capitol Records. She tried to get him on the label, and I think they said that there was other artists who sounded kind of similar. Sullivan did end up getting some traction with other record labels. His second record was on the Playboy label. Playboy magazine actually had a record label. So he had, and then he had a single on RCA, RCA, which is, you know, the home to zillions of recordings, uh, Lou Reed and, you know, Nina Simone and a million other people. So he had these uh, moments that seemed like, you know, as each kind of year passed, that maybe this was going to be the big break. And, you know, it, it, it of course wasn't, but as we all know, it, it's really hard to make it in the music business. That first record that Light in the Attic reissued featured the session band The Wrecking Crew. You know, The Wrecking Crew are the band that backed up, you know, the Beach Boys and every, you know, TV theme show song. And Still, Jim Sullivan's music career never seemed to fully take off. So in 1975, Sullivan left his kids and wife in L.A., and he left on a road trip to Nashville to see if he could catch a break there. There's a highway telling me to go where I can. Sullivan never made it to Nashville. Somewhere in the New Mexico desert, he disappeared and was never seen again. All that was left was his car, and in it, his money, guitar, clothes, and a box of unsold records. The same records Light in the Attic would later find and reissue. And one of those records is called UFO. And one of the songs on that record was about being abducted by aliens in the desert. Chicken like a leaf on the desert heat. His daddy's got a bang that's so hard to beat. I bought me a ticket, got a front row seat. I'm checking out the show. Sun 
So the conspiracy theories about his disappearance begin. So there's people who feel that maybe he was taken away by uh, UFOs or some uh, alien creatures in the New Mexico desert. There are also theories that he was killed by a family of mobsters. When his car was found, it was found next to this family who supposedly had mob ties. Some think there was foul play by law enforcement because he did get pulled over by police in New Mexico. His car was swerving. They thought he was drunk. They took him up for the sobriety test and realized he, he wasn't and told him to check in the local motel. There's also a conspiracy related to his appearance in the film Easy Rider. Jim has a small part in that film in the New Mexico kind of hippie commune scene. And weirdly how that film goes is, you know, hippies end up in small town America and bad things happen and get murdered. And, you know, there's that theory that, you know, was was this was his disappearance or what happened, some type of foreshadowing of that. You know, there's 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 quite a few. There's obviously a theory that he just, you know, walked off and was never, uh, you know, he wanted to disappear. So he did that. But when his car was found, it was the battery was dead. Matt Sullivan has spent the last decade researching Jim Sullivan's music and disappearance. He even put together a mini documentary on YouTube about it all in 2010. We went out to the, when we went out to New Mexico and kind of retraced Jim's where, last known whereabouts. And then we, after that, we drove down to San Diego to visit and interview Jim's son, Chris, and Jim's wife, Barbara. And on Friday, Light in the Attic Records released Jim Sullivan's self-titled album, along with another album of previously unheard tracks. The thing we just are, are releasing for the first time, we found in someone's garage in West Hollywood, an old tape of Jim uh, recording, pretty much going through his songs, kind of figuring out what he wanted to do on that first session. And he's... Um, you know, you hear the songwriting, obviously, so much more in the fact that it's just him solo on acoustic guitar. Um, there's a handful of songs he had didn't ever record anywhere else, which is pretty fascinating. Thunder and the lightning in my eye And when the train began to move Then she waved goodbye What do you think would have happened to Jim Sullivan if he was still alive, like if he kept at it? Do you think that he eventually would have made it big, or is there just something about the music industry that not you know every not everyone makes it? Good question. I, w- I would love to sit here and say yeah, he would have made it big and done this and that, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think he hit a wall in in '75, and the reason he was ended up in New Mexico is driving to Nashville as he had a family member who was a musician there, and so he was ho- thinking his music maybe as it's a bit Americana or country-esque, um, he'd have a better chance. It's so tough to say. I, I don't know. Maybe he would have uh, ended up becoming um, a teacher, insurance salesman, or who knows. And then someone like us shows up on his doorstep decades later and wants to reissue his record. But he would be alive. Um, I, would, I would love to have met the guy. You can check out the latest releases and reissues of Jim Sullivan's music at Light in the Attic Records. They're located in KEXP's Gathering Space. I'm John Richards. You're listening to Sound and Vision here on KEXP. And I have Rudy Willingham in the studios with me right now. If you don't know Rudy, he is a DJ, producer, designer, copywriter, street artist. Stop me anytime, Rudy. Photographer, Seahawks, videographer, retired drone pilot, 
and product designer from Seattle. He's got over 26,000 followers on Instagram, hit the front page of Reddit and BuzzFeed multiple times, been named KXP Song of the Day a few times. He played the block party many times. He made ads for some of the world's biggest brands. But he also just released what I believe is one of the best albums of 2019, local or otherwise. Dunk Reactions, name of it. Rudy, how are you today? I'm so good. Thank you for having me. You must be tired of all the all the. I'm mean, tired from all the things I just <laughs> described. I do a lot of things, but they all kind of work together. Yeah. You know, I do my I do photos and that you know those are the album covers, and I do music and those kind of are underneath the videos. You know, I use my art to promote my business, my business to fund my music. So it all kind of, they're all just kind of ideas, you know? And if it's a good idea, try to make it happen. You published a coffee table book called um, Cut It Out Seattle. Can you tell me more about this? Yeah, so, you know, if you follow me on Instagram, I have this art style. It's basically, I, I explain it as street art with paper. Um, and so I take, you know, I cut out, make little paper cutouts and I'll place them in front of objects around the city and create a form of collage art. So for instance, the cover of my book is the space needle underneath it is a little green beam with a uh, Jeff Bezos being abducted. <laughs> into the, I'm looking at it. Yeah. Right if you look really closely, you can see the Amazon logo. Oh, you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, so anyways, so I put the green beam underneath the top of the space needle, and now it looks like a UFO. So it's kind of putting a different spin on, you know, photos you usually see around the city. And I think, like, so much of the stuff you see on social media is all the same, same shots, same angles. Um, and that was just a way for me to do something new. It's called Cut It Out Seattle. I can't recommend it enough, it, it, especially Seattleites should have this. I mean, anyone who opens that up at, at somebody's place would be like, who is this dude? <laughs> what is he doing? So let's, we talk about your art, and I want to talk about the record um, that, that yeah. uh, we've been playing quite a bit. First, it's called Dunk Reactions. <laughs> is that straight up a reaction to a dunk? Is that... <laughs> yeah. So like, I just, you know, every, We're, I just oh. love, yeah, love when someone slams you know, like a huge dunk and everyone in the crowd is going nuts and it's just like... Just pure joy. No one hates this. Everyone loves it. Everyone can get into it. And I feel like that's the kind of reaction I want people to have when they hear my music. Uh, the first song we started playing this summer was called Pool Party, called Pool Party. People freaked, like from, <laughs> from the go. Like you, I see people in the gathering space, for instance, and I saw them look up and stare, you know, as a DJ, that's always good. And I'm dealing with people looking at laptops and they're busy mm. and everyone kind of like, what is that? And it just jumped out. It became kind of the unofficial, official summer jam on the morning show and other shows here. I got to ask you about the song, and, and I, where's it come from? What, what is the sample? What's it from? Yeah, so it's to, you know it's just like my art, where I'm taking two different I'm taking different samples and combining them together, and so the vocal samples from like this YouTube video of these girls. Uh, there's girls walking down a hotel hallway to the pool, okay. and the, their instructor is leading them in this chant. So I saw that. It's like a 10-second clip, and I was like, oh, my God, that's the catchiest hook I've ever heard. And I was like, I need to put a beat to this. And then I had this old funk sample I've always wanted to use, but it just didn't feel finished without vocals. I felt like it just needed something over the top of it. So I immediately had that come to mind, put it together. And I was just like, oh my God, this is like 
meant to be like the universe had like created these two songs to come together you know it's like musical tinder you know it's like putting <laughs> finding being a matchmaker between these like different things and uh the response was like amazing because up until that point no one was listening to my music <laughs> and i literally was just making music for my wife and that's why you know when you started playing that it's just like really changed kind of it's like maybe my music career isn't dead like you know The other one that jumped out to me was Callie. I played it um, in the morning. I was at the bar uh, that night. I had someone come up to me and, and they're like, hey, man, I love your show today. And I said, oh, thanks. He said, there was a song, though. It didn't sound like anything I've, I've ever heard. And he described it was your song immediately the way he described it. He said, it's like nothing I've heard before. And it's funny. You're taking these samples. You're doing <clears> stuff. But you created something. And that was my thought on that one, too, and a few other songs in there. Um, can you tell me about that song? Yeah, I think that's probably the one I'm most proud of just creatively because I think like it's combining so many different styles into one thing. So there's probably like, you know, 15 different samples in there. There's I'm playing the synthesizer, you know, laying down drums, a lot of effects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it starts out with just like this really psychedelic kind of like harmony. And then it's the for the vocal samples, this really small part in this kind of like Italian prog rock thing. It happens for like 15 seconds, you know, and I was like, you guys should have done that the whole song. What are you doing? Then the bass, I was, I, it's kind of embarrassing, but I really love that song Satisfaction by Benny Benassi. <laughs> Satisfaction. Satisfaction. So I looked up on YouTube, like, how did he make this sense? So I, you know, program this patch and I tried to like combine those two things. And then, yeah, the rest is just other different samples and stuff, but I think that's like a good encapsulation of what I'm trying to do with my music, which is like really bend genres and mix different things. Can 
we talk about the songs Jade and, and Fools a little bit? Yeah. Like those to me jumped out as, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Odessa's work, mm-hmm. uh, Moby. Um, those jumped right into kind of that category for me, that emotional, electronic, um, cinematic feel to them. It really blew me away at how much emotion and how much cinema and how much um, just the orchestral pieces in it. Can you can you talk about those tracks? Yeah. So Jade, Jade, the, my two favorite kinds of music are like that old psychedelic pop kind of stuff. Um, so that's where that's the first sample came from. And then the other stuff I love like '80s synthwave. So I tried to f- mix like that, I, and I thought that those two things should be put together. And so I. You know, it comes in, and then when the beat drops, it's got this, like, really driving 80s synth uh, thing that works really well, but it's kind of, you know, a little unexpected, right? And putting a bunch of effects on the samples to make them kind of, like, wobble. And then when it gets to the chorus, I just, like you said, like, I felt like I had this really cinematic vibe, and I, like, felt like it wasn't... It's I was like, where's the crescendo, right? And so I kind of sent... My buddy, John Everest, who's this amazing composer, he does a bunch of video game soundtracks. I'm like, I need something like, you know, to be like a movie, right? And so he laid down this like amazing thing that I could never play. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, that's another one of the songs like Cali where there's like 15 different samples, so many things going on. Um, but yeah, that would, that would probably be my second favorite one. You talked about, you know, you kind of wanting to give up on music or nobody was listening and you see the successes of a, of a Moby or, or a Des is a good example as well. Like we've been playing those guys since mm-hmm. like the Bellingham days. What does it take? Like what, what, what is different for them or what, what did they, what do you think they had to go through and what you'll have to go through for more people to hear this record? I think like, yeah, I think unfortunately just having good music doesn't isn't enough anymore so i think like you need connections you really do like i I hate to say that but like you need to know the right people or you need john richards to play on (laughs) kxp you know and so a couple years ago like i just i was putting out music and literally no one was listening to it except for my wife and so i was just like well i'll just make music for you i guess um but i realized like I need to build an audience and like, you know, I was sending emails to all this, the press, no responses. And I was like, man, like there's no point in doing this if no one's listening to it. So like, I, that's kind of why I started my Instagram page. Cause I was like, I need to build like an audience that I own that no one else is in charge of. And that's the way to reach the music. And so I had that pretty much the full album done, like maybe a couple of years ago, but I, wait, I wanted to wait till I had a big enough following where I thought people would actually listen to it. Wow. So you sat on that for that long. <laughs> well, yeah, I thought I I had it and I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to put it out and no one's going to listen to it, you know? <laughs> so um, just like the response it's gotten has been like so surprising and so amazing. And uh, um, yeah, that's kind of what, I, what I'm saying about like all the things working together. Like I don't think if I didn't start my Instagram and build that up that my music would, you know, the album would be having any success. So Well, I, I, I absolutely think you've captured something on this record. And, and I, the samples you're using, the way you're going about it, and 
just the vibe and the feel of the record. It feels like a very important record to me. Wow, and I don't say that crazy. often. Yeah, I, I, I really think it's one of the best albums I've heard this year. Like I, I, I play it two or three times a day now. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Yeah. Because there's so much there to choose from. And uh, I hope more people hear it. And they will, I have no doubt. Uh, Dunk Reaction is the name of it. Rudy Willingham, our, our, our guest today. And, and is there a... Where can people go for this? We've been mentioning your Instagram. We've been mm. mentioning all the stuff you do. People are probably looking for you right now online, but to make it easy for them, what, what's the best way to follow you? Yeah, well, music, just t- Rudy Willingham on Spotify, but the hub of all my creations is the Instagram. So at Rudy underscore Willingham, my profile picture is the Rainier R. That's how you know it's me. Um, <laughs> Thank you again, and good luck with the record. Me. And uh, I can't wait to hear what else you're creating. And again, you should follow Rudy because uh, his Instagram's amazing. And, and his I just art. did some John. Oh, I'm gonna post a John Richards one soon. I'm looking right at it, and it's uh, I'm blown away by it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how to react to it, but um, it's like a dunk reaction. <laughs> yeah, See, right exactly. there. Whoa! Look at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really it's Rudy Willingham, and this is Sound and Vision. This is Sound and Vision. Let's continue our series called Day Job. It's where we talk to Seattle area musicians about how they juggle their music and work in order to get by. Today, Rachel Stevens introduces us to Lindsay Kagan. As a Seattle native, she's seen the city change during the recent population boom and cost of living hike. But through her day job and her band Salt Lick, she's found the community she's always loved. I think the the hardest part of playing music and also working is just kind of retaining a sense of self. I'm Lindsay Kagan. I'm 29. I'm a Taurus with a Capricorn rising and a Pisces moon. For those who don't speak astrology, that basically means she's stubborn, creative, sensitive. And I have played guitar in the band's Salt Lick for two years. Lindsay has been playing guitar since she was 15. She grew up in the U District of Seattle, right in the heart of it all. But when Lindsay graduated, she went off to Smith College in Boston to pursue law. I kind of had this fantasy of like going to college in Boston and I don't know, like, you know, doing that whole, like, legally blonde thing, you know? But, yeah, I went there, and it was kind of just, like, a totally different world to me because I had grown up going to public school in Seattle my entire life. College was hard. Not academically, really, but culturally. Lindsay missed Seattle. She even ended up writing a pretty big paper for a government class on the establishment of Seattle as a city. She recalls the best parts of that research. So I'm like trying to remember, like, I mean, the things that stuck out were basically that, um, you know, since the Pacific Northwest is like one of the last like settled areas in the United States, 
you know, because it was the top, you know, northwest corner. They had to be pretty, like, self-reliant on uh, on themselves and their community for, like, entertainment just because everything else was so far away. Yeah, so there's just kind of always been this, you know, looking to your community for entertainment. Um, I think that's part of why our scene is like it is today. <laughs> Right after graduating, Lindsay was right back in Seattle. Upon arrival, she worked at a law firm in Pioneer Square. She was trying to balance her career path with being in her 20s in Seattle. She went to a lot of shows. She lived in a party house. One of their most epic parties was even featured in The Stranger. It was pretty epic, but this was all happening at a time where I was also working at this law firm, so I felt like I was living this double life. I think it's pretty common to feel this double life in your early 20s, the complicated path of trying to find a job that fits with your passions and also pays the rent. You try on different jobs, you see what fits. And for Lindsay... I've had so many different jobs. She worked for that aforementioned law firm. I only worked there for about like a month and a half before I like... Basically, yeah, I got fired. She worked for a music software company. I was like the only one of the only uh, women that worked there, and definitely the only like gay person that worked there. And it was just like me and a bunch of dudes who only talked about Seahawks and Bitcoin. She worked retail, food service. I worked at a bagel shop, and that was awful. She's done a ton of jobs. I've been a production assistant. I've done other office like admin work. I've just done a lot of different things but I've been working at Rudy's Barbershop for the past almost three years now. Rudy's Barbershop is the punk place to get your hair cut in Seattle. You walk in and you see this collage of show posters and stickers and magazine cutouts all over the walls from top to bottom. And if you go to the bathroom in the Rudy's in the U District, there's porn lining the walls. It's edgy. And they employ pretty edgy people. Lindsay's a receptionist at the shop on 15th in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. Many of Lindsay's coworkers have tattoos gracing both their arms. They may have an assortment of neon-colored hair, piercings galore. This is a place that's punk in appearance, yes, but also an attitude and community. You might even hear Lindsay's band Salt Lick playing while you're there getting your hair cut. Rudy's will, like, purchase music of their employees' bands and put them on our music library. But also it's just a place where I just like don't really feel like I have to pretend to be somebody else. I can just be totally myself. So they support the little people, but they even cut the hair of some of the pretty big names around town. I've seen Dave Matthews in person quite a few times, but he were, um, he gets his hair cut at the Ballard Rudy's location. Also Ronald Reagan Jr. got his hair cut there, um, which is really weird. Um, I think I've seen Dan Savage, like, in our shop on the hill. I think some coach of the Sounders. Lindsay obviously isn't in this job for the celebrities. She's in it for the people and the culture it creates in Seattle. I really love the community here. You know, I think it's really special. And I'm inspired to see, you know, more and more people, you know, becoming involved. Um, I love seeing people who are, like, new to town. And then, you know, some years later, it's like they're playing shows, they're playing tons of shows. It's like really great to like watch people's development here. Figuring it out and developing skills, making it work. 
it's still a pretty wild landscape out there for musicians trying to make it in Seattle. And for Lindsay, with each performance, she figures it out a little more. (laughs) Playing live, I feel like it's just like going on a first date, essentially, but over and over again, you know? Sometimes it's really great, and sometimes you're like, oh my god, can I get out of here? How... I'm just not going to face this. I I don't know what I'm doing. Please, somebody help me. You know, we're, you're exhausted sometimes. And, you know, when you play a show, it's not, you just like show up and then you get on stage and play. It's like, show up and like you do your sound check and you're there generally like a couple of hours before you even play and then you want to stay and support all the other bands so you're there until like maybe 1 30 in the morning two in the morning and then waking up at like six to go do it again waking up at six means she's likely opening up at rudy's but ultimately like when you play a really good show or if you like connect with another band or like somebody is like oh i really love that i don't know it there it makes it worth it or if you like make a new song and you're like holy this is like amazing i feel really connected to this i guess it's just like worth it for the moments of like connection that you do have collaborating and performing with salt lake is making all the late nights and early mornings at rudy's worth it for Lindsay, because it means she's encouraging those connections for people who live in seattle right now and want to be involved in play music here my advice would just be like you can totally do it. It's hard, but just because something's hard doesn't mean that it's not worth trying. You know, people who make music and who create like need to stick around or else the city isn't going to be, you know, any place that anybody wants to live, you know. What's a bunch of money in like corporate buildings without like any art or any creativity or any soul or any life, you know? But you just have to like, you know, find your community and like engage with people and figure out like what's available because that's the only way I've been able to do anything here is just by getting to know people and like having them be great people and like want to genuinely help you out. And it's just like when you can do that to other people, you, you do that for them. Just like when Seattle was first established, we look and sound our best when we help each other out and invest in our community. It's a wild frontier out there. This day job piece was produced by Bree Ripley, Ryan Sparks, and myself, Rachel Stevens, for KXP's Sound and Vision. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. It's now time for our listener question of the week. Since Halloween is just around the corner, we asked, what's a song that reminds you of that holiday? 
So my name is Stephanie, and I'm from Traverse City, Michigan, and um, I wanted to share my song that always reminds me of Halloween. It's called The Legend, and it's by a man named Steve Cook. He was a disc jockey here at a local radio station called WTCM, and he wrote and recorded it in 1987. It started off as like um, an April Fool's joke from Native American um, urban legends and folklore, and uh, kind of turned into this big thing up here in the tip of the mitten. Um, all of Northern Michigan is pretty familiar with this song, and every year my family would gather together on Halloween after trick-or-treating. We'd sit together, lights off, candlelight, and turn the radio on and just sit and listen to this song that is, you know, both spooky and yet just leaves, leaves a lot to the imagination. So it reminds me of Halloween and all of the traditional family things that we used to do. Eleven lumberjacks near the Garland Swamp found an animal they thought was a dog. In a playful mood, they chased it around till it ran inside a hollow log. A logger named Johnson grabbed him a stick and poked around inside. Then the thing let out an unearthly scream and came out and stood upright. My name is Ivan, and I live in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Back in college in the late 80s, I used to visit the local cemetery during the winter with friends uh, or by myself. And I would plan to go there in the snow and uh, read poetry. And um, Halloween's never really been about scare or spook factor for me. It's always been more of a melancholic feeling that I get around this time of year. And uh, the music of Dead Can Dance, especially the first few albums, really puts me there. It's not necessarily one song, but just the feeling of that, of that sound and uh, what they did for me back in those days. Hi, I'm Matt from Portland, Oregon. Uh, it was after college when I caught Donnie Darko in a theater, and it was a haunting film experience that really swept away my imagination. It was as much the graphics as the story and the music. Years later, my friend Sam was looking for recommendations for a Halloween film at a party, and I said, you should really do Donnie Darko. So I pulled out my DVD, he set up his big screen and surround sound system, and we invited a bunch of friends over. But unlike the first time I saw the film, it was more of a co-ed crowd. And the creepy bunny ghost time travel theme was a little hard to take at a house party where people really just wanted to eat popcorn and hang out. Pretty soon, it was just kind of the background soundtrack to the rest of our time. Uh, we were graduated from college, becoming young adults, then older adults. And the music referenced a time and a way we felt when we were younger.
Thanks to everyone for sharing their story, and thanks to you for listening. Remember that KEXP is a public radio station. That means the majority of our funding comes from listeners. If you like what you hear, please give back. Give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. It would also make a big difference if you just took two minutes of your time and rated and reviewed this podcast. It lets other people know it exists. And because you do listen to this podcast, be sure to subscribe. That helps as well. All right, let's wrap up the show today with our final question. Why does music matter? Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic Records answered this one this week. I would say music matters because it's the greatest art form and it, it might be the greatest piece that humanity has ever brought to life. <laughs> Does that sound insane? But I, I really honestly believe that. Chicken like a leaf on the desert heat. His daddy's got a bang that's a hard to beat. I bought me a ticket, got a front row seat. I'm checking out the show with a glass of eye. Looking at the sun dancing through the sky, did he come by UFO? That was Sound and Vision. Thanks for listening.